For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome to Twice on Sunday from Heard Tell. This is our review of the week that was by going over all the great interviews we had. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us for this edition of Twice on Sunday. It's Easter Sunday for those of you that observe. For everybody else, we hope you're having a great weekend. Now, these are just clips from the interview portions. We have great guests every single weekday episode of Heard Tell. If you want to hear the entireties, you can go to the YouTube page. It's under the Good Talks playlist or you can watch the full episodes there also also all of the podcasting platforms itunes spotify google you name it it's on there go find it anything labeled good talks those are the interviews and the full heard tell episodes that you can get each and every weekday doesn't cost you anything but a click we'd love for you to check it out please make sure you subscribe us we're going to kick it off this week uh back on monday we talked to jane bambauer uh she's a professor of law arizona university uh she talks about the fourth amendment and some updates that need to be due because now we have these things called geofencing and how police and law enforcement can use groupings of electronic data, data collection, privacy concerns, search and seizure in the Fourth Amendment in the 21st century, and high tech. A lot to be involved there. How do we constrain it? How do we use it properly? What's the terminology? Jane Bambauer, Fourth Amendment, folks, you need to learn it. It's the one you're probably going to need if you're in a bad situation. You need to know your Fourth Amendment rights. So let's talk to Jane Bambauer right now. We've talked about some of the positives that theoretically could come out of this on the law enforcement side of the spectrum of this thing. But, uh, Professor, as you all know, that all sounds great on the board in the classroom, but we're out here in the real world. We're grown folk. We understand that human nature is undefeated, and we got a lot of data. Uh, The police are human beings, and they like to push the boundaries of their authority. How do we, you know, they're not doing real great with the warrant system as it is in a lot of cases, as we've seen too much in the news headlines lately. How do we uh, realistically constrain things like this? Uh, because because of the high-tech nature of this, some of the old models of restraint just aren't going to work. Some of the old check and balances are going to have to be updated some form or fashion, I would think. How do we make sure that the good parts are getting implemented without the bad parts where they're, they can get very invasive into people's lives in a big, big hurry in this with this technology? Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah, so I, I think there are a few practical limits that should be applied either by police departments themselves, and that that does happen, you know, um, um, police agencies and certainly um, the federal, you know, Department of Justice often, often actually constrains itself even more than than law would require. But there's, but I'm also hoping that this is an area where legislation could come fill in and actually take some pressure off of the courts too, to figure out what's allowed and not allowed. The Constraints that I think are important, at at least at this stage, 
um, are, first of all, making sure that a request of this sort is unlikely to capture way too many devices. So, you know, if there's a crime at a Justin Bieber concert, this is not the right tool, right? You're going to have just too many cell phones in, the, in, the, in a small area. And unless there's some other, you know, unless there's some other limiting factor that can can help um, ensure that only a, a small number, say, you know, fewer than 50 or something devices are um, are tracked. Um, I I have advocated for it's not super popular, but I've advocated when we're when we have a new technology for limiting its use to the more serious crimes. Um, the the thinking there is is that we it allows a sort of testing and proving ground and figuring out what what the problems are in a context where the crime solving if it does in, in, indeed turn out to be efficacious the the, the pr crime solving is most valuable to the public um so so personally if i got to design everything i would i would limit its use to um you know felonies that are punished at a certain level you know maybe not even all felonies um, the other thing I worry about um, is, you know, as I said before, I think one of the benefits of this style of investigation is that there's just not a lot of room for the police to exploit the tool. I mean, unless they're making up crimes whole cloth, um, there's, uh, you know, and as long as there's some process of confirming that a crime did occur at a certain area and the geofence is constrained enough to not wrap in too many people, uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to be as ripe for abuse. Let's talk about it this way, because we want to bring this to a practical thing. We, we understand that these things get worked out. We understand one of the frustrating things with technology moving so fast is we, we, we actually just have things downtown. It's like, oh, well, I wonder who's the first person to sue so we can get some case law on this is going to be. It's just kind of how the legal system works. What's the legislative side of this? Uh, is there, there's obviously a path here where there needs to be some legislative oversight, both on the state and federal level. Uh, municipalities are probably going to have some variations on these things, depending on things. Uh, where do you see that going? Because that too is going to affect the case law, because as we've seen with other things, you know, the, the motto of the Supreme Court lately has been go, go talk to Congress about it. Uh, where do you see that going and how that's going to affect the case law? Is there a push for legislation in this area or is it something that's really, really lagging? And, and we're going to probably, unfortunately, with the way legislatures work, we're going to have to have some kind of a bad news event in this area for them to get attention on it. Yeah, well, the, the only legislative activity that I'm aware of are legislatures like like New York's that are contemplating banning this process entirely. Um, so I think geofencing has wound up being kind of categorized with things like facial recognition technology as something that just has an ick factor and legislatures feel like it's more politically palatable to just go ahead and cut off uh, police use. Um, so uh, in, in, in some ways that's a little bit of a challenge because if, if what I'm suggesting sounds right, like if, if we actually want to encourage some limited use of this style of technology, of um, technology-driven investigation, um, it, it's not clear who lobbies for that, right? <laughs> I mean, the, the police departments themselves, maybe, um, but on the other hand, if the police departments think that without legislation, they're basically unconstrained, then they probably won't. So, so I think, you know, that there's, 
there's a kind of political economy problem here that I, I am not really uh, an expert in and could not kind of forecast how this could work out. Let me comment though on uh, the, your, your observation that the Supreme Court has too frequently uh, hinted that they're just waiting for the legislature, whether federal or state, to, to get involved. I see that as a trend too, and I, it's an unfortunate trend. What I see in Fourth Amendment case law, it's always been a little bit of a hodgepodge. I mean, it's just it's just very strange. Supposedly, we're looking at what reasonable expectations of privacy are, but then you know, police can pretend to be other people and be your friends, and you know, they can do really strange things to get information, extract information out of you, and then they can't do even the slightest. You know, they they can't you know even touch your doorknob or something. You know, the, the case law is very strange. It's starting, though, to get to the point where there isn't even a lot of grounding principles. I would love for courts in the lower levels at first and eventually sort of showcasing their thinking uh, as cases move up to the Supreme Court to, to come up to articulate the values, the core values that we're trying to preserve and how we, you know, how the legal system should um, should 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 balance them against the practical necessity of, of police investigations. And I just don't see a lot of that. Even Carpenter, the case that we were talking about um, where the Supreme Court decided you can't go get a hundred days worth of geolocation data. The Supreme Court wouldn't even say how many days of geolocation data you can get without a warrant, right? So their, their decisions these days have been so narrow. They're sort of gesturing toward thinking that there's too much privacy abuse but are not giving us firm principles to, to kind of iterate on. Uh, we're going to have to have you back on because I really want to talk about this at some point with one of our legal experts like you or one of our other friends is it's gotten to the point what we're talking about with the, the case law. We now have states specifically writing legislation to get it into the Supreme Court. I think that's a very pro or against or whatever that that's a really bad that that's not a good path we're going down with that we'll we'll have to have you back and talk about that in a water sense because uh when you start having the participants in the system trying to short circuit the system that never ends well but that's we should dig into that that's a that's something that i think not very many people are talking about but it's going to really dictate some things over the next five ten years i'm afraid you tell me if i'm wrong but i i see that train coming and i don't like how it looks i don't know about you yeah no i agree it's not a good trend yeah, well, I was gonna say, I I think some of the state laws, like I'm a, like like in terms of you know abortion restriction laws and stuff like that, some some of the state laws are designed to test whether there's uh, the Supreme Court is ready to make a change of, of rule. Um, that has its own you know perverse consequences. Um, but but another problem, which I think you're right, is related, but I can't, you know, I haven't thought through how, is this increasing narrowness of the, of, of the way that the Supreme Court drafts its opinions. So it used to be that the Supreme Court would write short opinions, like 20 to 40 pages long, and they'd have these kind of overarching value, explaining their overarching values so that lower courts could try to apply them to new facts. Now the opinions are hundreds of pages long and they just say, well, we're not going to say much more than just that this case is decided in this way. 
And we haven't, you know, we reserve the right to decide a different way for almost any other case. Um, and it's, it's really an abdication of their responsibility. Uh, welcome back to Twice on Sunday. That's Hertel's review of the week that was. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us on Tuesday. One of our favorites, our buddy Eric Medlin. He's a history teacher at the college level up in the Raleigh-Durham area. He's also a writer of local histories. Make sure you check out his books. But he had, came on because he had written an article about how history and historians can apply to the present day. Now, this hit home to me because I almost always go to history to try to get some guidance on current events, try to figure out what's going on in the world. I'm kind of a historian at heart. My dad was a history teacher. I always go to history. Is that the appropriate way to do things, though? How do we apply history to current events, especially when we do things like analogies or parallels? And also, since we have Twitter famous historians now or Facebook famous historians What's their proper role? Should they really be in the prediction business? Do they have any more insight than anybody else does? Great questions for how we consume the news now and how we fit history into it, which is something I do on each and every Herd Tell just about. So I learned something from this one. Hope you do too. Our buddy Eric Medlin, historian, right now on Herd Tells Twice on Sunday. How do we start parsing through history when we have a really complicated current event like this and you have somebody like Vladimir Putin who comes out with an untruth like, well, Ukraine's never been its own country, it's never been its own people group. Well, history is what we would go to to prove or disprove that fact. What's a good way for folks to kind of dig into something like that? Because you're talking about thousands of years of human history, but we have this pressing need to kind of get through it in a big hurry because we got tanks rolling at us. How do we handle that? Exactly. And I think that that's a concept that historians have to be familiar with, and especially historians trying to do this kind of public intellectual work. History is what's known as a chaotic event. They're, the butterfly effect applies. There are thousands and thousands of different events and thousands and thousands of possible precedents. And so what I think we need to do is when we have a, an event such as Ukraine, what we need to do is kind of start with the most, I don't know, I don't know what one could say, try to find the closest parallel, try to find the parallel where the, the circumstances fit the best. Like um, the one that I used in a piece I had for Arc Digital was the, um, was the, the, the Hungarian revolution of 1956. That was a country very close to the, the, uh, orders of Russia. It was in the USSR. There was a revolution. Uh, the Russians and the Warsaw Pact countries sent in tanks and crushed the revolution. That was very close and it had lots of, of parallels to the present day. And so you're trying to find an event that has parallels, that has similarities, and also that that tells a story and that makes a point about different responses to that event that we can have. So you look at Hungary is in this, the, the Hungarian Revolution 1956 is in this particular uh, explosive geopolitical moment similar to today, but not exactly the same. And then you know, the countries, England, uh, France, the United States responded in a particular way. And they're going to respond at this time. And so it's just kind of trying to find the most helpful parallel, not the parallel that's going to get you the most attention, like mentioning Hitler in the context of 
uh, history and public relations. We're talking to our buddy, uh, Eric Medlin, a historian. We have a recency bias anytime we're dealing with history, especially in the public sphere, especially on social media. But you just alluded to it. The specter of the Soviet Union looms really, really large here for a lot of very good reasons. Uh, historically, this is, you know, they were under Ukraine was under Soviet domination. Uh, Putin's a KGB guy from the Soviet days. Um, it's an it's an inescapable conversation here because we have the Cold War, which the West sees as this great victory, this great um, this great triumph of humanity over a bad system. And then we get reminded that there's bad actors like the Putins of the world who saw that as a terrible wrong that needs to be righted. Even though it's a recency bias a little bit, there's a lot of learning to be done on things like the Cold War that we don't think about this way, but that's over a generation gone now. And maybe we haven't retaught some of those lessons properly. And then something like Ukraine happens and all of a sudden people are like, oh my goodness, why are these folks fighting? And we need to reteach it again. How much of history is just being repetitive with it? Because every 5, 10, 15 years, you've got a new generation and you've got to teach this stuff all over again, don't you? Well, that's exactly right. And something that happens with many different historical events and it happened with the, the Soviet Union and our understanding of USSR is the new availability of sources. USSR opened up its archives in the early 90s. There's this fascinating story of how researchers rushed in to, to get these, these papers before they were going to be you know, spread to all four corners of the earth. And a lot of those papers helped historians re, uh, re-litigate the Soviet Union and re-litigate the story of those past several decades. And so, and then they, they published books and articles and they taught the, the things that were, were that, that the West had gotten wrong about the Soviet Union and that the earlier histories had gotten wrong. And so there's always more sources. And also mid to late nineties, Soviet Union falls out of the headlines, people maybe aren't as listen, listening as much to those new histories. And so public attention, new sources, new historians with new methodologies, all of that plays into this, what you're saying, this need to reteach history over and over and over again. The events happened, they stayed the same, but our sources and our approach and our mindset and the attention we're paying changed. Talking to Eric Medlin, our history friend, frequent contributor at Ordinary-Times.com, published author in his own right. Okay, when you take something really big, like a shooting war, like this is pretty much the largest land war in Europe since World War II, this is a consequential event. As a historian, when you start looking at this, do you start making little mental notes as it's happening, knowing that you're going to have to go back and stu- you're going to be studying this for pretty much the rest of your life? Like, <laughs> this is going to be a big deal for, for the next 50, 60, 70 years. Do you kind of start taking little notes as it's happening, as it's developing? Like, okay, I need to go back and research this. Okay, here's a parallel I'm going to look at later. Oh, here's this story. This don't feel exactly right. I want to leave this one alone and come back to it later. How are you viewing this as a historian as it's unfolding in front of us? Well, you're really reading the the, the first draft of history from from journalists, from people who are on the ground, people who are analyzing the situation in your New York Times, your Atlantic, your New Yorker, all of those different things. You, you get the, the 
real-time analysis and information. And you try to, just as a historian, you're just a, a publicly interested person. You want to see what's happening. You want to see where it's going to go. And you do, you kind of take notes. You see what, what might be relevant. You see what you may want to come back to later, how something will, will develop. Um, and what earlier process um, is starting to look like it might happen again. Like I keep posting um, about and telling people that Ordinary Times needs to have a, uh, I think it's a mud week or a tire week or something along those lines, because there's this, there's this idea that maybe you know, one of the things holding Russia back was the, the uh, melting snow and the mud and the poor logistics and does that harken back to those earlier invasions of Russia in the early 19th century. And usually as a historian, you wanna be careful making too many parallels between the modern information age and the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries because they're so fundamentally different in so many different ways. Those people would be alien to us and we would be alien to them. But in some particular ways, if you start looking at situations that are unfolding, you can start to see maybe those earlier helpful parallels can teach us something about what's going on. Uh, welcome back twice on Sunday. That's her tells review of the week that was by going through some of the great interviews we had this past week. Avi Wolf uh, wrote a piece for us at ordinary-times.com. A lot of pundits have been talking, especially a certain brand of pundit on the right, that the GOP and the Trump populist current itineration, however you want to label that, is actually consistent with the entire history of the GOP, especially post-World War II, going all the way back to the 20s and 30s. Well, Avi took us on a journey. He wrote a piece going all the way back to the 20s to Warren G. Harding and walks us all the way up through the current day and time. So does it hold up? Has the GOP always been things like isolationist? Has it always been populist? He disagrees on some of that and walks it through us. We pick up this clip about halfway through the conversation, starting with the post-World War II consensus that we talk about an awful lot, Dwight Eisenhower and moving forward, the history of the GOP. Is the present really been consistent with its past? Our friend and writer Avi Wolf on Twice on Sunday, right after this. Uh, we talked about foreign policy and interventionalism. And of course, we know America has always had these, they have these moods from time to time about interventionalism. But what about non-war foreign policy, uh, especially post-World War II? Uh, Eisenhower comes to power. The Republicans finally have the White House back after a long break. And we understand he, you got to call him an internationalist in some regard because he was the great general of World War II. He had a lot on his plate. He has the start of the Cold War. He has Korea. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world besides just military intervention. How did the foreign policy of the Republican Party start to change and start to shape what we now call the post-World War II consensus? Okay, so uh, Dwight Eisenhower's winning not only of the election in 1952, but of the Republican nomination in 1952 was incredibly important, uh, not just for America, but for the world, because he beat out Robert Taft, who, as I said, was not quite isolationist, but was incredibly skeptical uh, of NATO and of any kind of uh, what Was uh, George Washington would call entangling alliances. Uh, Ike believed, 
that after two world wars, either there was really nobody else with the economic, demographic, uh, industrial power to keep the peace in the world. And that if they did not impose it to varying degrees, this is gonna happen again. Um, and so he wins the nomination and he wins the presidency. But here's the thing, um, there's a tendency nowadays because we all in living memory, most of us mostly remember the George W. Bush administration, we tend to think, well, Republicans were always these gung-ho, always go to war types. As we just noted, before World War II and during World War II, they really weren't. But even after World War II, they tended to be generally fairly cautious. Uh, Eisenhower rarely directly uh, endangered uh, American troops, only for very specific purposes. Um, uh, for those for those of you listeners uh, who are old enough to remember, Richard Nixon also ran on and had a policy of trying as much as possible to work indirectly through allies uh, against communist aggression rather than uh, rather than endangering American troops as much as say Lyndon Johnson had done. And even Ronald Reagan, who everybody remembers for his soaring bellicose rhetoric about communism, was nevertheless very careful about um, getting American troops directly involved. He believed in projecting American power through all sorts of indirect means. And by the way, um, people remember the 1920s as an isolationist time. It's not entirely true. It's true that they didn't want to get involved militarily, but uh, Warren Harding and especially Coolidge's administration were actually very big on using American finance to try and rebuild the, sh the, the world of Europe shattered uh, through the First World War through American credit and banking so that the, these, these events ha happen again. So there's a real, it wouldn't happen again. So there's a, real, um, there's a real disconnect between our memory of that era and how Republicans actually function. This idea that, uh, this is why I say that this idea that Trump is this new idea of not getting involved, not endangering American troops is, is, is a break with the post-World War II consensus. If anything, it's a much more exaggerated, much more bombastic thing that Nevertheless, in terms of actual policy, Dwight Eisenhower wouldn't necessarily have uh, have been so shocked at it. Yeah, and you mentioned using all that money, all that foreign aid, things like the Marshall Plan, which was, you know, I, I don't even want to know what in today's dollars that would have cost uh, with the markups and the contractors and everything else. But the reason they could do that is because of the absolute, you know, once in a millennium economic boom that was actual after World War II. This this is part of the Republican Party's been a little bit all over the place on their economic policy, though, because let's go back to the 20s again. You had massive tariffs in the 20s, which eventually would cause part of the Great Depression issues. That part was on them and on their blame. But then you have the post-World War II era. Then you have all the way up to today with Trump and his tariffs. They, the Republican Party's had a wide spectrum, and they tend to bounce back and forth on the ends of it when it comes to things like trade and commerce, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think part of it is that um, we live in new times. We live, we live in times where um, when, in the 1920s, if I recall the statistics correctly, something like 40% of Americans were employed in manufacturing in one way or another. Today, the number employed in services is far higher. Uh, the type of economies uh, is different. Uh, even manufacturing is different with all different kinds of technology and the skills required to work there. Um, so I honestly think that both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, if you pay attention to what they're doing, they're foundering around, I think, for a solution for a new for a new situation that a lot of us, we're not going to admit it, maybe, but a lot of us are not really sure what to do. 
the 1920s solution to the Republicans was basically the same old, same old uh, high tariff uh, barrier system that they had in the Gilded Age. It was using an old, uh, an old solution for, uh, for a new problem, and it worked for the 1920s, but then the 1930s came and they needed new things. And I think the Republican Party being all over the place and Democrats being all over the place, it's not necessarily because they're all, they're, they're all, uh, they're all hypocritical or speaking out, out of both sides of their mouth, but because we genuinely aren't sure. We genuinely aren't sure what the best ideas are, what can be done and what can't be done. Yeah, and along those same lines, something else that they're having that same argument over, uh, government regulation, the power of government. Um, we go all the way from, you know, the, the traditional Reagan Republicans, you know, big government is evil and we need to limit it as much as possible to now we have the national conservatives, which are we need to have big government to give me everything I want. Uh, regulation and how you actually handle the government once in power is another of those same things, those same lines. It seems to be the eternal argument, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and really, it goes far far more back into the U.S. history. You could argue it even started with Alexander Hamilton's idea of a national bank. Uh, with some people thinking that, you know, that's an unelected body that manipulates the American economy too much. But absolutely, uh, the question of what to do and how to do it uh, and how to oversee it. Uh, one of the uh, real weaknesses, I think, that happens on the right, and uh, this is there's a great article by Lyman Stone uh, in The Federalist about this, um, is that because the right is so suspicious of government, because they keep talking about all the bad things government does, and there are cases where government does bad things, they, they really don't train their best or even train people enough at all to be senior bureaucrats because where if you, at the end of the day, uh, until like there's some great upsurge among the American people saying, you know what, we want to limit the, the bureaucracy back to Jacksonian levels or whatever it is, the bureaucracy is going to be there. So someone needs to tame it. And the people who need to tame it are not just like the people at the very top, the cabinet, the uh, the cabinet secretaries, but you need people who are skilled administrators who can tell people lower down the food chain, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do that, no, you can't do that. Um, but that requires saying that requires having a more nuanced approach to government saying, look, we'd love to be able to have absolute limited government. Right now, that's not happening. So instead of just sitting in the mud and waiting for it all to, you know, waiting for uh, waiting for it all to go away, why don't we train people so that we can restrain it as much as possible? As Ronald Reagan himself said, uh, personnel is policy. I think that's a healthier approach rather than waiting for a perfect utopia. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tells Twice on Sunday show. We're reviewing our interviews from the past week. Remember, if you want to watch the entirety of these, because these are just little eight, nine, ten minute snippets of it, go on the YouTube page and or the podcasting platform of your choice. Just look for the Good, Tal Good Talks playlist and or you can look for the Good Talks label on the podcasting platform, take you right to it. And also the full episodes, also the long form episodes we do deep dives on certain topics. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a single thing we do here at Herd Tell. Okay, we keep our promises. Last time we had Brooke Medina on, she promised to come out when the new polling data for North Carolina was out. Well, it's out and here she be. Uh, the North Carolina Senate race is one of the hottest watched ones. It's going to be a very expensive Senate race trying to fill what's going to be an open seat with the retirement of Senator Richard Byrd. Uh, the, the polling data surprised a lot of people. Uh, Ted Budd, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump, jumped out to a sizable 11-point lead from the last bit of polling we had back in January. How did that happen? Because 
especially with Ted Budd. He's not actually campaigning. He blew off the first debate. What's going on here? But also, Brooke talked about how polling works, and we talked about how to look at polls, what's a good poll and a bad poll, why those crosstabs are so important. She talks about that. Then we also talk about some of the untoward things going on in North Carolina, like Madison Cawthorn, like Martin Meadows, Brooke Medina, John Locke, VP of Communications in North Carolina. She's in Raleigh. This is what they do. Talk a little North Carolina politics with our friend Brooke Medina right now on Twice on Sunday. Real quick, because we like to, we don't just like to, you know, cover the news. We want to explain it. You said something really important there because it's something I learned when I started writing. Explain to folks when they see these poll numbers, there's the headline and everybody just sees the headline and runs with it. Just walk folks through for just a second, just so they understand how these things work, what a cross tab is. Because if you, if you get these poll numbers, they tell you one thing, but you know, statistics, the great Vince Scully always says, you know, they're like a lamppost. Everybody's illuminating, but a lot of times they're just holding a drunk up. These cross tabs are where the data is. So just explain to folks real quick, especially a really good, well done poll like the Civitas poll. That's why we use it. Those cross tabs give you a lot of additional information. They give you the context that the headline doesn't always. So just explain to folks real quick how that works and how they can check on those things. Because that's one of the things when I look at a poll is like if they don't show me the cross tabs, if they don't give me that raw data to dig into, that's a poll that I'm going to look suspiciously at. Yeah, and there are many mainstream polls out there that do not include the cross tabs. Uh, we make sure that we always include that in all of our Civitas polls. So if you go to johnlock.org slash polls, you're going to be able to find not only the top lines, which is like those, um, those initial numbers that are just the more basic ones. It's the question, and then it's the results from that question. But the cross tabs are kind of what their names say, uh, suggest it's it is the cross alignment of one question with another question. So you think about it kind of like as an X, Y axis, and um, it will explain to uh, those who are reading it, okay, if a female in the 15 or 34 to 50 year old demographic also said um, that she was going to vote for Bud, we can also look at what other questions she answered and said maybe that she was also planning on voting for Trump in 2024 if he was running. So it helps us define or narrow down what kind of respondent is actually answering these questions. And that's really helpful for political campaigns, but also people who are in public policy like us, where we're trying to better understand people. And we want to understand what drives them. And if you only ask someone one question, like, how are you doing today? Um, they might automatically say fine, but you have to drill down into, uh, into some deeper questions or other questions to properly contextualize. And that's what cross tabs do. It can be a little, um, it can be, a, I don't know, it can be a little difficult to read them at times. So I suggest coffee beforehand, uh, but they are very helpful means of information or data points that can give us a better understanding of really where the electorate is at. Yeah, uh, our friend Brooke Medina is back with us. She does communications for John Locke Foundation. This is the Civitas poll. We're talking about North Carolina Senate race. Okay, so the thing with this race, though, and you touched in it on the poll where they wrote it up at carolinajournal.com, uh, the magic number on this race is actually not just uh, the plurality of voters. The actual magic number is 30%, because in the state of North Carolina in this race, 30% is going to avoid a runoff. So obviously, Bud wants to try to coast his way above it. McCrory, who's the nearest competitor, and Walker, by extension, they want to drag him down below it. Uh, that's kind of the race within the race right now, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's a that's a good point. That's an important point. And so if you are one of these, uh, if you're a supporter or the actual candidate yourself, uh, you need to keep these sorts of numbers in mind and again, not take anything for granted. Uh, the North Carolina electorate is quickly changing, but this is obviously uh, a statewide race. It's not just a congressional district. And so McCrory, Bud, Walker, Eastman, they all have to be mindful of um, the dynamics within North Carolina and have to reach a wide array of voters all across the state. Um, but also they have to be red media enough to appeal to the GOP primary voters, which are going to be um, the base of the base compared to the general election voters where they're going to have to make a, a pivot to uh, win a, a general election against the Democratic candidate who in all likelihood will be Sheree Beasley. Uh, okay, a couple other things going on in the Old North State. A uh, lot of attention to uh, the youngest congressman uh, of recent vintage, uh, Madison Cawthorn out in the western part of North Carolina, and none of it's good. Um, you know, you're based out of Raleigh, you do Civitas, you do John Locke, you guys are plugged in, you do a lot of policy stuff. The nonsense and the noise around this individual, this stuff seeps through, it distracts. But when you're trying to do policy stuff, is this one of those things where it keeps popping up and it's just starting to really, really annoy everybody on top of the nonsense stuff that he does? Well, we certainly cover him um, in Carolina Journal, which is our news outlet. We have a print edition and an online edition. And so there are no shortage of stories related to Congressman Cawthorn there. Uh, but he, yeah, he's been under a lot of um, media scrutiny as well as public scrutiny and his uh, his approval ratings are showing it. Uh, he is young, like you noted, um, but he's got a lot of responsibility. And so being young is really no excuse for, uh, you know, behaving in some of the ways that he has behaved as of late, uh, talking about DC parties, wild drug laden and uh, sex induced, uh, sex laden DC parties, um, as well as calling Vla uh, Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, a thug. But he is um, he's appealing to a certain base of his his voters. Um, but I don't know how that's going to play in the in the primaries. He ha we have Chuck Edwards, who is one of his opponents, and it is showing the polling is showing from the Edwards campaign that he's actually gaining on Cawthorn. So we'll see. We'll see how Cawthorn does. He spent a term in D.C., has not been very present for a lot of it, and that's one of the chief criticisms against him. And then he's been saying just some things that uh, that that definitely make people kind of look askance at him and wonder where where his maturity is. There's there's a part of this because the antics and the and I I find him just his behavior reprehensible on just a human level, let alone the politics of it. There's a big history in North Carolina. Uh, Richard Burr, who's the outgoing senator, of course, he has the, the stock scandal, which is what put him on the shelf. Richard Burr, uh, part of the reason Tom Tillis's ratings have rebounded, most of the congressional de delegation, both Democrat and Republican, there's a long tradition in the state of North Carolina, and you can speak to this. Your elected officials, when you go to that congressional office, when you go to that Senate office, you're going to get some kind of an answer. You're going to get some kind of personal service. That's why I think that's a big reason why Tom Tillis's stuff is rebounded. Uh, Richard Burr was well known for this. Like you, you got an answer when you went to his office. If you don't do that kind of work, that's not the stuff that gets on Twitter. That's not the stuff that gets on Facebook. It doesn't get talked about on CNN. 
But when people need something and they go to their congressman for it and you're not present and you're not there and you don't, I'm just going to say it, you don't have a competent staff to do those things. That's the stuff that really kills you when you go to the polling, because the people that are serious and show up to vote, those are things they still consider, even though it doesn't trend on Twitter, right? Yeah, that's that's the human side of all of this is treating your constituents like people and not just numbers that you need to maintain power. Um, this isn't a reality TV show. These are real American lives. And uh, when you exert some sort of level of uh, authority over them and you are indicating that you're incompetent to do that, uh, word gets around, even if it isn't what catches fire on social media. Um, a little uh, story about Senator Burr is that uh, just a personal story was that when my mom and dad were in a very, very um, life-threatening car wreck, uh, I didn't have my passport. It was, well, I had a passport, but it was expired. And Senator Burr's office helped me out so that I could get a passport expedited and fly out to the Dominican Republic that very next day. But that speaks to constituent services. You're there to help your constituents, uh, not just go on podcasts and talk about wild DC uh, drug-induced parties. Welcome back to Herd Tells Twice on Sunday's show, where we're reviewing the week that was when we talk about guests. This man has been on more than anybody else. He extended his lead this past week. Dr. Michael Siegel, our scientist friend, our stargazer, our friend that likes sci-fi movies. Uh, he wears a lot of many hats. Brilliant man. Great insight. Good friend. Always enjoy having him on the program. This time, he really brought it. We talk about everything from Chernobyl and the nuclear incident that the Russians are causing by stirring up things in the exclusion zone. We also talked a little bit about COVID and education as a teacher at the college level, the university level, what he's seeing in students that are coming in now that are freshmen and sophomores that went through those lockdowns, shutdowns, and virtual learning. But we also had some fun. Uh, he likes to write pieces about sci-fi movies. So we put him to the test. Uh, we call him out on his unwarranted hatred of the great cinematic masterpiece that is Armageddon. That's a joke because he can't stand that movie. Uh, but we also do a little bit of a lightning round on sci-fi movies that are and are not scientifically accurate, or at least as close as Hollywood can get. Uh, one of the smartest men in the galaxy, uh, Dr. Michael Siegel, our good friend. Always thrilled to have him. You're going to have fun with this one. You're going to learn a little bit. Also entertaining with him on the sci-fi stuff. Michael Siegel, right now on Twice on Sunday. Michael Siegel, we always enjoy talking about this. Now, his little side project, though, he likes to review science fiction and put a little bit of a spin on it. Uh, so I'm look, friends hold friends accountable. So I hate to do this to you publicly, but I have to. Um, with the sad news of the retirement of Bruce Willis from acting because of his health issues, and we wish him nothing but the best in that and his family. Um, would you like to take this opportunity to admit how drastically wrong you have been about the uh, wonderful motion picture documentary Armageddon and how humanity can save itself through the magic and power of science in, in lieu of the fact that we're never going to get a sequel now that uh, Bruce Willis has retired? Um, <laughs> I'm actually probably going to do a video hopefully this summer when I have a little bit more time on Armageddon. I can certainly see why people like it, um, but the liberties it takes with science are fairly extreme. So, uh, so we'll just have to reconcile ourselves, uh, meet in the middle with that where I can admit that I see why it is as popular as it is. 
Is it is there truth to the urban legend that uh, NASA and other folks used to use that as an introductory test of physics, where the students would have to prove all the problems that were wrong with things like gravity and things like that by watching the film? I can neither confirm nor deny that uh, that has been done at some point. Have but, you ever uh, done that at, at any point where you just got I, I so have, mad you I busted have, out the legal pad and went, I'm going to get them? <laughs> I have not yet, but it, it certainly is an interesting uh, project you could unveil on Astro Majors uh, uh, to, to look at that. Okay, uh, better. Let's, let's just do some quick hit, hits here real quick. Better scientific science fiction movie, Armageddon or The Last Starfighter? <laughs> um, I would say uh, probably Armageddon because Armageddon at least deals with a real problem, which is asteroids might possibly hitting the Earth. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Armageddon or Doctor Who? Mm, that's a tough one. Uh, I would say uh, Doctor Who because it occasionally does have a, a really good science fiction story. <laughs> fair enough. Okay, uh, here's one for you. Armageddon and original Star Trek. Um, I'm actually going to be doing a video on original Star Trek soon. I would say original Star Trek. Um, it, uh, I mean, it does deal with flights of fancy like warp drives and beamer, beaming and stuff like that. But it actually, the stars they mention are, are real. Some of the concepts they talk about are real. Um, there's certainly some things that you can criticize in it. And uh, I'll do, I'll, that's another summer project that I'm going to be doing. I just finished my uh, tweeting out my reviews of the first season of original Star Trek. And uh, just a preview for what's to come, I'm going to be doing a video where I break down some of the science of uh, the first season. Yeah, I remember uh, reading one of the original NASA guys from back in the 70s and 80s when Star Trek, and they asked him about it. And he goes, he goes, the orbiting bothers me. He goes, they act like that's the most routine ever. And that's the hardest thing we have to do. And that was <laughs> one of the points he took out of it. He's like, that's the hardest thing we do. And they make it like it's the most, uh, just put us in orbit <laughs> willy nilly. <laughs> Yeah, they also have this dev plot device where they have the engines run out and the orbit's going to decay. And I'm like, we have lots of satellites that have been in orbit for decades and don't have engines on them at all. So I don't, I don't think, unless your astro navigator is really bad, you shouldn't be in that unstable in orbit. <laughs> okay. All right. Armageddon or Deep Impact? I would have to say Deep Impact on that one, just in terms of the science. They get a lot more science right, but they get a lot of stuff wrong too. So uh, maybe I'll talk about that at some point. All right, and one that is semi-science fiction, but it's a movie that just drives me absolutely nuts. Armageddon or Day After Tomorrow? Uh, I've actually not seen Day After Tomorrow. I did talk to a climate scientist about that who did not like it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. If anything, sh should we just ban Roland Emmerich from making any movie that doesn't involve a natural disaster on Earth itself? Uh, that might be a good idea. I think uh, maybe we could actually get Congress to do that. <laughs> Oh, great. More. Yeah, let's make it a First Amendment issue while we're at it. Great job, scientist. <laughs> Dr. Michael Siegel, one of our favorite people. Uh, the streak continues. The lead has been extended. The most seen guest on the Hertel program. Long may your reign last, sir. Appreciate your time. Well, thank you for having me once again. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate you, my friend. Take care. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of Twice on Sunday. Again, if you missed any of these interviews or you want to hear the full interviews, not just the excerpt, you need to be subscribed. YouTube channel, you can watch them. 
Uh, there's actually a whole playlist just called Good Talks. That's just the interview portion. And of course, the full episodes of Heard Tell are on there as well as including the 36 episodes of Deep Dive. We got a couple of those planned uh, that are coming up too. You're not going to want to miss that. Also, that means every single weekday morning, you will automatically get the new Heard Tell episode. Same thing with podcasting platform. You want to do it the audio version? That's fine. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, all those compilation things. Any way you want to get it. There's also an RSS feed. It's on all our social media. Make sure you're getting Heard Tell every day. If you're on the East Coast of the U.S., by the time you wake up, you will have the new daily episode of Heard Tell ready to go. Every afternoon, you'll have the new Heard Tell Good Talks interview breakouts. And then, of course, twice on Sunday, the show you just finished watching. Make sure you're sharing us on your social media. It only costs a click, but it does great for us to let other people know our little program is out here. We're really proud of it. We're trying hard to make it as good as it can be because we found, and we know from your feedback, you're enjoying what we're doing. We're turning down the noise of the news cycle. We're cutting through the caterwaul and we're getting to the things that mattered. We're not wasting times on things that don't trying to discern our times and make things a little bit better going forward. So till we see you again, which will hopefully be tomorrow morning for the brand new Monday episode of Herd Tell. We hope you are well. We hope you are well fed and we'll see you soon on Herd Tell. Take care. All the music on Her Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.